Amen. Exodus 5, beloved, if you found your way there for tonight, we will take the time to read the entirety of the chapter and then give consideration to a part of my thoughts as I've been meditating on this in, in recent days. Exodus 5, let us hear the word of the Lord. So just for some context, Moses has, has met with God, God has met with him, he has been instructed, he has uh, relented in his excuses, accepted God's call at this time, and he's met with Aaron, and they are, they've met with the elders, and they are now the delegated uh, oversight for the Hebrews to represent them. So Exodus 5 verse 1, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you onto your burdens? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves." And the tale of the bricks which they did make heretofore, ye shall lay upon them, ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon them, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out, and their officers, and they spake to the people, saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get you straw where ye can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw, and the taskmasters hasted them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded, Wherefore have ye not fulfilled your task? in making brick both yesterday and today as heretofore. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servants? There is no straw given unto thy servants. And they say to us, Make brick, and behold, thy servants are beaten, but the fault is in thine own people. And he said, Ye are idle, ye are idle. Therefore ye say, Let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord." Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given you, yet shall ye deliver the tale of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were an evil case, after it was said, Ye shall not minish aught from your tasks of your daily task. Minish aught from your bricks of your daily task. And they met Moses and Aaron, who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge because ye have made our savour to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, 
Wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? And since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Amen. May the Lord bless the very reading of his precious word. As I've indicated already, there are those seasons in life where we are brought to question what is happening and what is going on. As I mused over and meditated and studied somewhat this chapter over recent days, there's much that is in here, but I was struck by the, the power of affliction to immediately cause us to doubt what it is that God has said to us. That the most resolved, the most devout, the most godly among the people of God can be brought to question, despite the fact God has made it plain what it is that he wants us to do. To encapsulate something of that, I looked at one of the questions that Moses asks at the end of the chapter, verse 22, because in the opening of this question, it really encapsulates something I think we've all asked at some point or other in our own experience. Why is it that thou hast sent me? Why is it that this has happened? Why is it that I'm going through this? Why is it that I'm not getting a job? Why is it that I'm not the one promoted? Why is it that I haven't found a spouse? Why is it that my children aren't all converted? Why is it, why is it, why is it? We've been there. We've been there like Moses. And this is a man who is on the back of a direct meeting with God. God has come to him. God has spoken to him. And yet still, he is brought to this point. So I want us to think about this just before we come to pray because God does move in a mysterious way. And it is true that we all can be addressed when Cooper says, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. We judge the Lord by what he skillfully describes as feeble sense. This is us. And perhaps you're right here tonight. So listen as we give consideration to why is it. First, we ask questions like this when enemies appear stronger than God's people. We ask questions like this when enemies appear stronger than God's people. Israel didn't ask this when David was making short work of all the enemies of Israel. They didn't ask this. They were fully confident. They saw this great warrior leading all of the battles, and it was almost like victory was, was a foregone conclusion. There were times even in Joshua's existence where no doubt they felt the same. But when enemies appear stronger than God's people, then, then this is when we ask questions like, why is it? Why is it this way? You think of the enemy that they stood before, Pharaoh, encapsulated in Pharaoh. First of all, he was fearless, wasn't he? 
when he's given this request. Of course, Pharaoh really is being tested here. Moses is instru- was instructed by God to go and ask for this, this brief journey out into the wilderness, this, this brief time. It was a test for him. Instead of making something, making a request that, that would evidently people would say, there's no way he's ever going to let them go permanently. The entire economy of Pharaoh depends upon these, these Hebrews carrying on their work. So, so to so say, let them go entirely is, is a dead end before you start. So Pharaoh, so that you see that it's not the, the irrational or, or the, the being asked too much uh, on the side of, of the Hebrews, to see that the problem is in the heart of Pharaoh, Moses told to first go and ask, can they go three days journey, travel out, perhaps to Mount Sinai, there meet with God, have a feast, meet with their Lord, worship him there, and then they will return. So that is what they are encouraged that they might do. That's what's asked in verse 1. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Who is the Lord? Who is he? Why should I obey? Now, when we have enemies, this is exactly how they think. Enemies of the church think this way. Friends of the church don't think this way. Friends of the church recognize God humble themselves before God. But enemies of the church, immediately we ask, will ask the question, why? Why, why should I bother? What, what is his authority? What right does he have over me? And we see many enemies to the church today. We do not have, we don't have a government that, that sees itself as a nursing mother. We don't have people in government that see that, that part of the role is to uphold God. And in fact, that in their calling, they are servants of God, Romans 13. They're servants of God. They get elected, and maybe you look at them or others look at them and say, you're there for the people, but they're actually not. They're actually not. They're there for God. They're there for God first and foremost. So even when you think about those who are put into office and put into place, they're first there for God. They're to recognize that God has put me in this role. I am to serve him first. Pharaoh doesn't recognize that at all. He is not alone. This is common throughout history. So he's fearless. He has no sense of the fear of God before his eyes whatsoever. Of course, I'm not going to get into how he viewed himself. Um, Pharaoh was viewed as a son of Ra, the sun god. So he himself was seen as a certain a kind of deity before them anyway. So he, he has no fear towards any other named God. The enemy is also godless, not just fearless, but godless. And you see this by his own testimony. I know not the Lord. I know not the Lord. <laughs> there was, there's never been truer words. You don't know. You don't know the Lord, Pharaoh. That there is no doubt. So he's not only fearless, he's godless, and he's also ruthless. You read through verse, from verse 6 through verse 9, you see that his response to this request is immediately, the same day, verse 6 says, the taskmasters are given. He doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't get his counsel together to consider it for a number of days. He doesn't put it out to a vote. He doesn't say, let us consider this for a short time and then decide what's the best way to approach this. He immediately comes down with a heavy hand saying, don't give the people any more straw. Let them go and gather it for themselves what they need to make up their work, their, uh, the quota that has been appointed to them. So he's ruthless. And, and in some ways, really, the, the work, 
as I'm reading it, I think verse 9 really gets to the main motivation. Let them not regard vain words. Keep them distracted so they can't have time to talk in any way that might instill hope. Vain words, that's how he sees the discussion that maybe we can go out for a little while and worship God. That's vanity. Don't give them even time to talk like that. Don't give them the opportunity and make them be so overworked that they can't stop for a second to pass on a word, have a discussion, meet to consider what it is we might do in the worship of our God. He's ruthless. So we ask questions like this, when enemies appear stronger than God's people, might we say today that what we see in opposition to the church appears stronger than the church? Do the powers that exist in our current climate feel, do they feel like they are more powerful than God? Does it seem at times that when we quote what Jesus promised he would do to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, seem like just some empty hope rather than a guarantee? Where are we found currently? Secondly, we ask questions like this when providence appears to conflict with God's promise. When providence appears to conflict with God's promise. Go back to chapter 3. You saw this last week, so it's familiar to those of you who were here. Chapter 3, verse 7, as God meets with Moses, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land onto a good land and a large, onto a land flowing with milk and honey, onto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There's, there's exactly what God said. So, this is what's on his heart. This, this is what he is carrying. As he went there first with Aaron and stood before Pharaoh, he is carrying this sense of this is what God said he would do. But there was an additional remark that God had made. There was insight that he needed to keep in mind. And perhaps it wasn't really, maybe it wasn't given its place in Moses' mind and in the minds of the others. Go to verse 18 of chapter 3. They shall hearken to thy voice. Thou shalt come down the elders of Israel unto the king of Egypt, and he shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders and so on and so forth. I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. There are details sometimes that God communicates that we, I say conveniently, but it really is an inconvenience, we forget. 
we forget. We hone in on all the promises, all the good things, all the things that fill our hearts with hope and encouragement. And that's okay. That's okay. We should do that. But we have to take on board everything he has said. I'll never forget the first time noticing. If you go to Mark 10, you'll see this. And I don't know how many times I'd read this. and For some reason, it hadn't really jumped out at me. Um, I imagine that at least there's some of you that have maybe had the same experience. Maybe you're sharper. Maybe you are quicker than I am. But I certainly hadn't seen it for until one day I was like, what? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see that there before. That, that, that makes a difference. Mark 10, 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the gospel's but he shall receive an hundredfold. Oh, you know it, don't you? Isn't this wonderful? You're sacrificing. You're called to sacrifice. You get this encouragement. He shall receive an hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands and in the world to come, eternal life. Oh, there's this little, the little bit in there. With persecutions. With persecutions. I don't know how many times I read that until one day, it was some years ago now, I was reading over and going, hang on. (laughs) Have I not read this? Did I totally miss this? So I I, I honed in when I was reading this. And certainly when you're contemplating going into ministry and you're thinking about what that might entail and where that might lead you, Passages like this tend to come to the fore. So you you think about them a lot. And so I had given some thought to this and all the encouragement. It doesn't matter where you go. The Lord is with you. He shall bless. He shall multiply. All the things you give up, he can make up to you in this life. As well as the eternal life that we have in Christ. Then there's this with persecutions. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. It's with persecutions. You're not going to avoid persecutions. You can have all of these blessings and God will be true to his word, but there will be persecutions. So there are other passages in scripture where we do the same, where we take what the promise is. We sometimes even read into it that which isn't even there. You know, for example, let's, let's take for example, maybe this isn't so prevalent in our own circles, but we will look at Isaiah 53 and certainly in Pentecostal charismatic movements, they will say, by his stripes you're healed and they will apply that to physical ailment and they're going to be healed in this life. They'll take a verse like that and they'll pray over it in the anticipation that all their bodily ailments will be healed, which of course you take to its logical conclusion. You ask, well, why do any of you die? You know, at some point, this whole outward frame wears out. It's going to happen. Doesn't matter what your view of miracles and so on may be. So they take, so you can misconstrue even what the intent of a passage is, what a verse is, but even with it being clearly stated, we may miss it. And that may have been the case even for Moses. Now, 
you think of whether Moses, you know, did he communicate this clearly? These officers who, who come back and they're discouraged, <clears throat> is it partly because Moses didn't prepare them and warn them sufficiently? Well, if you go back to Exodus 4, and it tells us, the end of Exodus 4, verse 30, they stand before the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses. So everything was communicated, at least to the elders of the people. So they did their job. But it's not, they just think about, oh, we're going to get set free. This is great. And then when it doesn't happen, they're, they're hit with that in a way that is difficult to bear. So you think of other passages as well. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5 that the sufferings of Christ abound in us. The sufferings of Christ abound in us. Are the riches ours? Yes. Are you seated in heavenly places with Christ? Yes. And yet the sufferings of Christ abound in you. As long as you do not suffer as an evildoer, as Peter warns, but suffer as a Christian, meditate. Oh, Christian, learn to meditate on the correlation of your sufferings with the sufferings of Christ. Make the connection. See it. Did Christ face unbelief in his day? Or did everyone around him just believe everything he said and submit to him, believe in him, show respect to him, honor him? Did they? No, he was surrounded by unbelief. So when you're surrounded by unbelief, remember, this was part of the sufferings of Christ, and you're suffering in a similar fashion. Was he resisted by his family? Yes. So when you're resisted by your family, don't feel isolated. This is the sufferings of Christ abounding in you. You, you, you can put yourself right there and imagining what it would be to be the very incarnate Son of God and have your own family in the flesh. Refuse to believe who you are and why you're on the earth. Did he live in an ungodly nation with a dep depraved government? Yeah. Here you are, living in a largely ungodly nation with a largely depraved government. Does it break your heart? It broke his heart too. He lamented it. He wept over it. Did he experience mistreatment? Many times. Many times. So when you experience it, remember him. Were his words taken out of context at times? Were his intentions misread? Did he ever have to wait for an answer to the desires of his heart, so to speak? All these experiences are, are, are the part of the, the sufferings of Christ here in a fallen world, surrounded, immersed in the curse, though he himself without sin, but he is surrounded by it. And the sufferings that come by it are very real to him. Perhaps they're even more real to him because of the purity of his soul. 
And so as you aim after godliness, as you strive to live the Christian life, and yet you're enveloped in mistreatment, misunderstanding, and people misconstruing intentions, and family not believing, and all the other difficulties that you face, don't, don't get so discouraged that you imagine yourself going through some strange experience. These are the sufferings of Christ, and they're appointed to you. They serve a purpose. Oh, how we want God to understand us, and how we revel in a sympathizing Savior, but oh, is not the same sympathy to be reflected back by us towards Him? Are we not also to consider what he endured to save us and think, I cannot believe he was willing to condescend and endure the contradiction of sinners against himself in order to save a wretched sinner like me? So when we ask, why is it? Why is it that thou hast sent me? Why is it that this is happening? Why is it? We may be walking by sight and not by faith. It's a very real, very real practice, even among the professing church. We walk by sight and not by faith. To walk by faith is to, he said this, he said this. So whatever I see, it can't contradict this. Learn to trust what God has said more than what you can see. If you don't, you promise yourself misery. Not only may we be walking by sight, not by faith, we may be prioritizing physical comfort, not gospel consolation. The consolation for the apostles was not that what Christ had promised them was a phys physical strength for till they reach a hundred years of age and then they just slip away without any suffering. <laughs> you know, that, that wasn't what they were promised. And so you have Peter and John being beaten for unjust reasons coming away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. They, they got gospel consolation even with the, 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 the scars they now had been inflicted upon their body. Paul's the same many times. Think of all the, the beatings, the stoning, the lashings, and, and he's always keeping in view that it's the gospel consolation. It's, it's this knowledge that while the outward man perisheth, the inward man is renewed day by day. This corruptible will put on immortality and so on and so forth. It's recognizing that this body of ours, so broken by sickness, so destroyed by a fallen world, so limited in its powers, so deficient even in the consistency of its powers, where brilliance can decay over time and strength fades. 
Even with all that, there's a knowledge that this body has been redeemed. It belongs to Christ. And we don't simply await going to heaven. Never allow yourself to fall into it. Not, not just awaiting going to heaven. Have the full eschatological purpose in view. This body belongs to Christ. And the full end of it is not me buried in the ground and my soul in the presence of God. The full end of it is body and soul perfected in God's presence. Keeping that in mind. This body of mine that feels its weakening and zapping of its strength and demise belongs to Jesus Christ. He's going to glorify it. And as he glorifies it, he's glorifying me. So it's not just about physical comfort, gospel consolation. And we may be assuming also a place of sovereignty rather than submitting to sovereignty. When we ask the question, why is it? Why is it? That's, that's what a superior may ask an inferior. That's what Pharaoh thought he had a right to say. Why is it that you even ask this? I'm going to eliminate such thoughts from your head of disappearing to worship for a number of days. The one who assumes a place of sovereignty feels he can ask questions like this. You must be careful. I'm not saying you can't ask questions. I just say be careful. I warn that of that on Sunday as well. And finally, we ask questions like this when believers appear determined to discourage God's servants. It's not only when enemies appear stronger than God's people and when providence appears to conflict with God's promise, but when believers appear determined to discourage God's servants. When, when these officers of the children of Israel return from Pharaoh, they don't, they don't look at Moses and Aaron and say something to the effect, well, it didn't go so well. Things are pretty bad out there, and morale's very low, but we're going to trust God, we're praying, depending on Him. No. So they see verse 21. The Lord look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor, our taste, how we appear before the Egyptians, to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. So this is your fault. It's, it's <laughs> discouraging. Uh, Moses and Aaron, as they sought to obey God. And so when we have questions like this, it's like, why? Why did you let that happen? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And so what do these men, what do they fail to do? Again, they fail to take God at his word. They not only fail to take God at his word, which we've considered already, but I was thinking they fail to remember the delays of the patriarchs. Their fathers had repeated delays. One of the distinguishing marks of the patriarchs and their experience is, is the fact that God would promise them something and then they have to wait. Abraham waits 25 years. Isaac waits 20 years. Jacob Waits, not knowing whether he'll ever see Joseph again, not even sure precisely what happened to him. 
We're left with these, these, these voids. And we are to trust God. And when we see it in the past, we're meant to take that and arm ourselves with it so that we're not left armorless in such seasons. These things are written for our learning, so let me just lay that out clearly. They're written for our learning. God's delay to Abraham is written for you to imbibe and say, look, there was God's faithful servant, and he promised him something, and there was a long delay. And there's a son, too, and there's another long delay. And these delays, you keep seeing them over and over and over and over again. Moses himself thought that at 40 years of age, this is the time, and he has to go out and wait another 40 years of delay before finally God says the time is right. These things are written for our learning. So we are to be armed with these, and so when God says something, we take that, and even if we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, we will be governed by what God has said and not what we see. Moses, despite his own shortcomings here, perhaps not quite remembering, at least not bringing to the fore, God said that he was going to resist. At least he resorts to prayer. <laughs> I'll give him credit there. At least he goes before God. So when others are perturbed, he prays. And seeks the Lord. And that's a good thing. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Beloved, be careful with the, why is it? Are you his child? Was the blood of Christ shed for you? Are you promised redemption through the blood? Are you assured that nothing can separate you from your God? Are you told that he will answer your prayers? Are these things written in vain or do we take them as promises from God like a check we know will never bounce and cash it saying, I know God will pay out because he has said he would. Oh, may we pray believingly even tonight. Lord, help us. Let's sing.